morning. Dave and I just uh, pondering what we did to create this space between the front row and the back row there. That it was, you know, I asked Dave if he showered this morning, and he did, and so did I. I don't know, just uh, it's the parting of the waters, huh? Oh, okay, so you guys have just enough to sit in the back row of that section, right? Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Good morning. I'm glad to see everybody here today on Father's Day. You know, the apostles Paul and John, in most of their New Testament epistles, began with a greeting that included something like the one that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 where it says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the exact same greeting, the exact same words that we see in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, and 2 Thessalonians. It's almost the exact same wording as we see in Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and 2 John. So on Father's Day, we see it clearly stated that grace is from God our Father, and apparently grace was pretty important in the scheme of things. Why else would it appear in the greeting of 13 of the epistles? Now, unlike Mother's Day, when I feel a genuine sense of obligation to focus the Sunday morning sermon on some sort of Mother's Day theme, I feel no such obligation on Father's Day, Chuck. Chuck asked me if he was going to get the same treatment on Father's Day that mothers got. And I told him, uh, you may as well leave now, Chuck, because that's not going to happen. I began this morning's sermon with an idea expressed in Scripture that's loosely connected to fathers, at least our Heavenly Father, and to what we're going to explore this morning, but that's it. So there you go. Happy Father's Day, guys. Though the Gospel is the good news of God's salvation by grace through faith, we tend to think of the Gospel almost entirely in terms of what it means for our salvation. Yes, we all know the basics, don't we? We're all sinners. We're unable to earn our way into heaven. Because of that, we need the sacrificial gift of Jesus, God's own Son who loved, him, who loved us and gave Himself for us and shed His blood for the forgiveness of sin, making a way for us to the Father, giving us eternal life with Him. So we as Christians have the desire to tell unbelievers this good news so that they can receive this free gift of salvation and spend eternity with God. That's all well and good. That's perfectly appropriate. It's good that we know those things. But sometimes we forget and we need to be reminded of this. The gospel is just as much for Christians as for non-Christians. Think about that for a moment. We need the good news of His grace after we've received Christ just as much as we needed it to come to Him in the first place. The reason is somewhat different. Of course, we do still need the forgiveness of sins. After we're saved, we also need the Gospel to change us into the image and likeness of Christ. And that's a lifelong process that theologians call sanctification. But the truth is, we still need the Gospel of grace. I know that we need to be reminded of this because of several things 
that it's quite easy to observe in almost any group of Christians that you spend any time with. Perhaps the most telling observation is that we seem to carry around guilt. We seem to carry around guilt like we carry around cell phones and wallets and purses. In other words, guilt is almost always with us. It's not always a crushing, debilitating, kind of get-you-down-in-the-dumps guilt. In fact, for most of us, it really isn't that at all. But it's a low-level, almost a shadow of guilt that follows us around during most of our lives. Now, I'm going to list here some things that we tend to feel guilt over and see if you can relate to any of these. We could pray more. We aren't bold enough in evangelism. We like sports too much. We watch movies or television too often. Our quiet times, our devotionals, are a little bit too short or we don't do it often enough. We don't give enough. We just bought a new couch or a car or a TV. Our kids eat Cheetos and French fries. Or we eat Cheetos and French fries. Hopefully not together. We don't recycle enough. We need to lose 20 pounds. We could use our time better. We could live someplace harder or in something smaller. We could live more sacrificially like some of our missionaries. The bottom line is that we feel a sense of guilt for the things we don't do often enough, well enough, or perfectly enough. What we do, or what do we do with this behind-the-scenes guilt? We don't feel stop-dead-in-our-tracks kind of remorse for these things, but these shortcomings can have a cumulative effect, whereby even the mature Christian can feel like he's rather disappointing to God, maybe just barely Christian. So here we are, followers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, saved not only from death, but saved from the power of sin. We're headed for eternal life, yet we carry this sense of failure around. I wonder sometimes if that's what God really wants for us as his followers. Now the challenge is here is that guilt can be a good thing. We're supposed to feel guilt about sin in our lives. And we all sin. If we never feel a sense of guilt, we'll never repent. We'll just wallow in our sin and we won't experience the transformation that Scripture assures those who follow Christ. The other reality is that it's very easy for any of us to grow complacent. It's part, part of our human nature to drift, and we must resist that. Sometimes guilt can be an indicator that something's wrong, something's wrong with our attitudes, something's wrong with our behavior. It can bring conviction. It can bring a genuine desire to change, and this is good, and often it's necessary. But instead, what guilt sometimes brings to us is enough of a hint of condemnation rather than conviction that we seem to be carrying around a sense of not being good enough and not doing well enough. Now, I have to tell you that I believe this is kind of a risky message for me to preach here this morning. It's risky because the Word of God does bring conviction to us. And often, really, I feel a sense of direction to bring to you those parts of God's Word that are convicting. Convicting about our behavior, convicting about our attitudes, 
And I don't want to blunt those things that we've heard preached from the pulpit in the past or those things that we'll no doubt hear in the future. This is a risky message because if you don't listen carefully or if I don't do a very good job of outlining this theme here this morning, I could be accused of teaching that it doesn't matter how we live our lives because God's amazing grace covers all of our shortcomings and all of our sins. And you know what? His grace does cover all of our sins. But it also does matter how we live our lives, as we'll see here this morning. As in many things spiritual, there's often a sense of both and, not just either or. In this case, sometimes the scales get tipped too far toward the range of guilt and condemnation that we can feel, and we live our lives saved by God's grace, but living by our own failed efforts. We must remember what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if, in fact, we are in Christ Jesus, then any sense of guilt we do feel is meant to be used as part of our motivation, conviction toward needed change. And it's not meant to be a sense of condemnation because we can't measure up. Because the truth is, we can't measure up. We can't be good enough. How good is good enough for us to earn our salvation? There's no such thing as good enough. And after we're justified in Christ, after we've received His gift of salvation that's only found in His sacrifice for us, we still can't measure up. We're still unable to be good enough to change ourselves by our own efforts, although now we're equipped by the Holy Spirit to begin that process of change. So why do we feel so guilty so often because we can't measure up? I found some possible reasons. We often have this low-level sense of guilt in an article by a writer and pastor named Kevin DeYoung. First thing he mentions is that we don't fully embrace the good news of the gospel. We forget that we've been made alive together with Christ. We've been raised with Him. We've been saved through faith alone. And this is the gift of God, not a result of works, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. We can be so scared of antinomianism. Now, don't let that word scare you. We're going to look at it here in just a second. We can be so scared of antinomianism, which is a legitimate danger, that we are afraid to speak too lavishly of God's grace. But if we've never been charged with being antinomian, we probably haven't presented the gospel in all its scandalous glory. Let's just take a quick sidebar to explore this idea of antinomianism. It's a good theological word you may not be familiar with, but it relates to what we're exploring here this morning. Antinomianism is the idea that we are under no obligation to obey any laws of ethics or morality. Antinomianism is the polar opposite of legalism, which includes the idea that obedience to specific rules is necessary for salvation. It's the unbiblical practice of living without regard to the righteousness of God and using God's grace as a license to sin. In other words, since grace is infinite 
And since we're saved by grace, then we can sin all we want and still be saved. Antinomianism is wrong, even though as Christians we are not under the law, we still fulfill, we still fulfill the law in the law of love. As it says in Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. And thus we avoid the offense of sin, which costs God his only begotten son. Paul addresses this heresy of antinomianism quite clearly in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, where he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Billy Graham has a grandson named Tullian Chavidian. Isn't that a great name? He wrote this. He wrote, there are two laws we can choose to live by other than Christ. The law which says, I can find freedom and fullness of life if I keep the rules, or the law which says, I can find freedom and fullness of life if I break the rules. If most people outside the church are guilty of break the rules legalism, most people inside the church are guilty of keep the rules legalism. Another reason Christians seem to carry a low-level guilt is that Christians tend to motivate each other by guilt rather than grace. Instead of urging our fellow followers of Christ to be who they are in Christ, we command them to do more for Christ. So we see Christ-likeness as something that we're really messing up big time when we should see it as something we already possess but need to grow into and learn about. The other thing is that most of our low-level guilt falls under the ambiguous category of not doing enough. I think this is where most of us can really relate to this idea perhaps best. Let's remember the list we just looked at and think about the ones where you felt you fit in. Those are the things that we tend to feel guilty about. But you know what? None of those items that I listed are necessarily sinful. They all deal with possible infractions, perceptions, and ways in which we'd like to do more. These are the hardest areas to deal with. Because we, but because, well, think about this, for example. How many of you would say, I pray enough? I don't think anybody here would raise their hand and say, I do that. So it's always easy to feel terrible about our prayer life. Or evangelism. How many of you say, I evangelize enough? None of us. It's easy for us to feel bad about these kinds of things. Almost any spiritual discipline you can list. We have to be careful that we don't insist on a certain standard of practice when the Bible merely insists on a general principle. Here's another example of this. Every Christian should give generously, right? 
We've heard that preached from this pulpit and contribute to the needs of the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 6, addresses this idea. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Do you feel the guilt descending on you? But listen what it says next. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You see the difference in the appeal there rather than the compulsion that this talks about? the cheerfulness that this also talks about. We're supposed to be generous with our possessions. But what this generosity looks like, in other words, how much we give, how much we keep, isn't bound by any formula. Nor should we compel people to give certain amounts. Have you noticed this about TCF? We take about two minutes to receive the offering. Have you noticed this about some other places? They take about 10 15 minutes to receive the offering. It's a major... Why don't we do that here? We do not want you to feel under compulsion. We want you to give what God has given you, what you have decided in your heart to give. As it says in verse 7, each should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So if we want people to be more generous, we're better off using... Paul's example here in 2 Corinthians and emphasize the blessings of generosity and the gospel-rooted motivation for generosity as opposed to shaming people who don't give as much. You know, when we're truly guilty of sin, it's vital that we repent and receive God's mercy. I think the Apostle Paul probably had a clean conscience Not because he never sinned, but my guess is because he quickly went to the Lord when he knew he was wrong. And he also rested in the verse we just read a moment ago, Romans 8.1, the no condemnation of the gospel. And then the other thing that we must remember is the passage that Dave quoted this morning in advance of communion. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, John says... God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't believe we're meant to feel borderline miserable all the time. We are meant to live in the joy of our salvation. So when we sin, and we do all sin, we confess it, we get cleansed, and we move on. This underlines one of the great dangers with constant guilt. We learn to ignore our consciences. If we are truly sinning, we need to repent and implore the Lord to help us change. But if we aren't sinning, if we are perhaps not as mature as we could be or not as disciplined as some believers, 
or we're making different choices that may be acceptable but not extraordinary, then we should not be made to feel guilty. Challenged, stirred, inspired, but not guilty. Deeper grace will produce better gratitude, which means less guilt. Some of us tend to take almost a Muslim view of how to keep people from sinning. Let's take, for example, the biblical admonitions to keep our thoughts pure and not give in to lust. The way Muslims deal with this is an example. In many Muslim cultures, women are completely covered up. Now, I know some men here who might rather have women in burqas because they care about their personal holiness and they have to deal with the things that we see at the mall and watching television or worse yet at the beach. So the Muslim approach to resisting sin is to make tougher laws. The biblical approach, the Christian approach, is to appeal to God's grace. The fact is, the only way licentious people start to obey is when they get a taste of God's radical acceptance of sinners. The more Jesus is held up as being sufficient for our justification and sanctification, the more we begin to die to ourselves and to live to God. Those who end up obeying more are those who increasingly understand that their standing with God is not based on their obedience, but Christ's. So the idea here is that under the new covenant, we don't motivate people to obey by giving people more laws. We motivate them by giving them the gospel. That's not to say that God isn't concerned with obedience. The message of obedience to God is really a hallmark of TCF's teaching from this pulpit as long as I can remember, well before I was in this pulpit preaching. But what kind of obedience does God want from us? Does he want Abel's obedience and hard attitude? Think back to the story of Cain and Abel which made his uh, sacrifice acceptable to God, or does he want Cain's? The obedience that pleases God is obedience that flows from faith. Faith in what God has already done, and trust for what he will do in the future. And even though we need to obey, even if we don't feel like it, long-term, sustained, heartfelt, gospel-motivated obedience can only come from faith and grace not from fear and guilt. Behavioral compliance without heart change, and only the gospel can change hearts, will be shallow and short-lived. We're not seeing here that the law of God is unimportant or that it's not in any way good. The law serves a vital purpose. It reveals sin. It shows us the standard of righteousness. But you know what the law can't do? It can't remove sin. Only the blood of Jesus, by faith applied to our lives, can remove sin. Only the grace of God has any power to keep us from sin. The law shows us what God commands. It shows us what he expects from us, and in that way it's good. But it doesn't have the power to help us do what it says. The law shows us what a sanctified life, a life changed into the image of Christ, looks like but it doesn't have the power to change our hearts, to make us different in and of itself. What does have that power is the gospel, the good news of God's grace, the reality of what Jesus has already done for us. 
So when we find the ability to obey, it comes from being compelled by the love of Christ, the completed work of redemption accomplished on the cross for us. The law may be able to direct our paths, but only the gospel can drive us forward in kingdom service and obedience and in truly changed lives. I found this word picture to maybe help us understand this just a little bit better. The law is like a set of railroad tracks. The tracks provide no power for the train, but the train must stay on the tracks in order to function. The law never gives any power to do what it commands. Only the gospel has power, as it were, to move the train. I've got to tell you something. TCF has always been a church that challenges. It challenges in the sense that most Sunday mornings we hear something that challenges our faith and motivates us. We're challenged to be serious about our walk with the Lord, to live sacrificially, to give, to serve, to be obedient. You know, that's one reason I'm here at this church. That's one reason I started coming and stayed 30 years ago. Because I know I need these kind of admonitions. I have a sense that that's the reason that many of you are here too. Because you take your faith seriously. And you have a real desire to live wholeheartedly for the Lord. We see and hear these challenges in a wide variety of contexts. From doing missions to outreach, our missions giving, the call to live sacrificially. However, we must be careful always, always to keep these challenges rooted and grounded in the grace of the gospel. We need to remember that our obedience to God grows out of the sacrificial obedience of Christ, all that God has done for us through Christ. One author calls this gospel-driven, grace-saturated, God-glorifying obedience. I like that. I like that. Gospel-driven, grace-saturated, God-glorifying obedience. That's the kind of obedience that I attain to. This is the kind of obedience that doesn't leave us wondering if we're good enough because we know we're not. This is the kind of obedience that doesn't leave us wondering if we pray enough or give enough or serve enough. The truth is only Jesus has done enough. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. We, on the other hand, I, on the other hand, I'm still a work in progress. And the process of sanctification, that is the changing of ourselves into the image and likeness of Christ, is still ongoing. We don't want our lives to, we don't want to live our lives with guilt taking priority over the gospel or our ability to measure up being more important than God's grace. Paul wrote this to the Christians in Galatia. Listen carefully to this passage of Scripture, beginning with Galatians 2.21 and continuing through Galatians 3.5. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Really was for nothing. 
Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? Paul writing to his fellow believers, fellow followers of Christ in Galatia, calling them foolish. The key verse in the context of what we're looking at this morning is verse 3. Well, we're doing lots of good things. Paul points out that we're not the hot stuff we think we are. In comparison to God's holiness, he writes in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So much for our list of rules. So much for our human effort. Despite this biblical understanding of our human effort being, as it says in Isaiah, filthy rags, that's what it says, we sometimes continue on in the Christian life as if our efforts earn us something toward eternity or earn us something toward our sanctification in Christ. That's why we get trapped in the performance mentality. That's why many of us believe if we performed well, if we've had a good day, if we read our Bibles this morning, or we've performed some selfless act of service, we helped some old lady across the street, then we're in a position now for God to bless us today because we've done all these things that we're supposed to do. This means that although we believe we're saved by grace, we act as if we believe we can earn or forfeit God's blessing in our lives by our performance. And the reverse is also true. We have a day where we blow it and we know it. Not a very good day. We've had a bad day with God. We haven't read our Bible. We haven't prayed. We kicked the dog. We cussed out the driver who cut us off in traffic. Stuff like that. On those kinds of days, we might think we deserve everything to go wrong. We expect it. Right? The truth is, though, there's never a day there's never a day when we are worthy enough to receive his blessings. The fact remains, however, he blesses us anyway because it's about his grace. It's about his grace. What it all comes back to is our response to God's love and grace. What God wants is not a good performance. He wants my heart. He wants my heart. And from my heart's response to his amazing grace, good works, yes, even good performance will flow. It's the idea that we've been marvelously saved from sin and death at a tremendous cost to God and his only begotten son, Jesus. We've been rescued from an eternity apart from the living God by his amazing grace. How can we do anything but love him and follow him and please him? It's not because we're repaying a debt. We can't repay it anyway. It's because we love him. 2 Corinthians 9.8, we read a moment ago. Let me read it again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Where do those good works come from? They come from all the grace that God has made abound to us, right? So living by God's grace does not mean we shouldn't go to church. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be faithful in serving. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be faithful in reading the word or faithful in prayer, or faithful in the spiritual disciplines, or careful in guarding against and rooting out sin from our lives. But, as author Jerry Bridges wrote, the pursuit of holiness must be anchored in the grace of God, otherwise it is doomed to failure. He 
He says the pursuit of holiness must be motivated by an ever-increasing understanding of the grace of God or else it can become oppressive and joyless. My hope this morning, my prayer this morning, is that what we've heard from Scripture contributes to that ever-increasing understanding of the grace of God. One commentary noted, the Galatian Christians, like you and I, stand always at just a fork, just such a fork. We must either take the path of relating to God through law or of relating to God by grace through faith. We cannot have it both ways. If we are trying to relate to God through the law, we are not living by faith. And being a Christian will make no practical difference in our lives. Our hope for transformation now will be replaced by futile self-effort. For the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In closing, let's remember that guilt-driven motivation is a far cry from the freedom we have in Christ and in his grace. This passage from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, tells us about this. Paul wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, now that was the context in this passage, but I think we can safely say that he would also mean be bound by any set of rules. Circumcision happened to be what he was talking about here. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's be the kind of Christians who express our faith and our love for God in gospel-driven, grace-saturated, God-glorifying obedience. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you that this is the grace in which we are saved and this is the grace in which we stand. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would always remember that your Holy Spirit motivates us by your grace. As your word says, the love of Christ compels us. Help us to rest, Heavenly Father, in the reality that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, when we feel any sense of guilt, let it be only because you are convicting us of sin and let that guilt be motivation to convict and repent. Lord, we know that even repentance is a gift. We seek that from you when we need it, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your grace would motivate us. Your grace would move us forward even as the train has moved along the track. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would Fill us so full of your understanding of grace, your gospel, the good news that we can't be good enough, but we don't have to be good enough because of your grace. 
Help us to rest in that, Lord. Help us to rest in that. And as we rest in that, Father God, we do trust that our understanding of your grace will grow in our lives and we will be motivated. It will be a gospel-driven, God-glorifying obedience. We thank you for this, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.